Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday, and this is By the Glass. Happy Friday. I hope that wherever you are, you have a glass of wine in hand. And if you don't already, please get onto it. Because today we are looking at one of the most versatile white wine varietals on the market, Riesling. And just like Savion Blanc from the Marlborough, Riesling has had its fair share of bad press, often associated with Germany's mass exports of the 70s and 80s. Now, while it's often thought of as a sweet wine, Riesling can vary from bone dry through to wines that are rich and textural and sticky. It really is a varietal for all wine drinkers. So, let's get into today's episode. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to winemaker Belinda Hughes from Riesling Freak in the Barossa. Now, alongside her husband, John, Belinda specialises in all things Riesling, from dry to sparkling, sweet and fortified. Their label, Riesling Freak, celebrates a deep love for one of Australia's most underrated grape varietals through 11 expressions, because that's all they do, just Riesling, which is why they are the perfect people to tackle today's episode with. Please welcome... Belinda. Hello, Tom. Belinda, what a lovely way to spend our afternoon together. It's not bad, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I actually said to Belinda before we started, I said, I've already had a mouthful. (laughs) She goes, oh. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Uh, So, Belinda, thanks so much for joining us. I think that we should start with the most obvious question, which is, why Riesling? Because very few vineyards or sorry, wineries around Australia just specialise in only one varietal and that's all you do. So why Riesling and why the name Riesling Freak? That was a really good question. Basically, Riesling Freak uh, is the sort of passion project of my husband, John. Um, he grew up on a Riesling vineyard in Clare with his parents and um, and he basically, his entire sort of endeavour in becoming a winemaker was for them to see their grapes in the glass. He always wanted these, saw these amazing grapes that his parents were growing, disappearing off into big wineries and blended away and, and, and sort of thought it was a bit of a pity they never got to drink wine of their own vineyard. Uh, as a passionate Riesling lover all his life, he did pick up in university, did pick up the uh, nickname Riesling Freak because everywhere he went he had a bottle of Riesling in tow and so when he decided to create his own wine brand Riesling Freak seemed like a pretty logical name. (laughs) (laughs) And so can you, um, I think that's a fabulous, uh, fabulous intro, Um, can um, can you give us a little bit of background on Riesling as a variety? Certainly. So Riesling is really one of the world's oldest and most noble varieties. Um, It originated in the Rhine region of Germany um, and written records of Riesling actually date back to 1402. 
So it's a variety with a very long and very sort of illustrious heritage. Um, and it, it was first planted in Australia in, in 1838 uh, at a site near Penrith by William MacArthur. And up until the early 90s, it was the most prolifically planted white grape in Australia. Um, and only then was it overtaken by Chardonnay, which, of course, is now uh, dominates the uh, Australian white wine scene. But Riesling as a variety has been long renowned for, um, for what the Germans call its transparency in flavour. So it's all about purity and uh, its real unique flavour profile and the way that it presents to, to the terroir in the glass. As I mentioned in the intro, it's quite a versatile variety. How versatile are we talking um, there is literally no limit to what you can do with Riesling. And I think this has obviously been championed by the Germans. They've been doing it the longest. But here in Australia as well, you can find Riesling, particularly from Riesling Freak, in just about any style you can imagine. We make a sparkling. We make several very, very dry Rieslings. We make off-dry, uh, sweet, uh, and even fortified styles. Um, there's almost nothing you can't do with a Riesling. <laughs> Which is why I'm just loving having all three glasses in front of me. I just can't get it. <laughs> uh, so I'm just flicking between. Um, now, what uh, – okay, actually, question. Where is it most commonly grown and are there any emerging regions that we should be aware of? Well, Riesling is grown pretty much. I mean, obviously, Germany is still the spiritual home of Riesling. Uh, and it's on the world stage. There is definitely where most of the world's Riesling is planted. Um, but there are also plantings all across Europe, really, um, throughout Austria primarily, uh, but also in South Africa, in Australia, New Zealand, and uh, particularly across North America. Uh, basically, people are trying to grow Riesling just about anywhere you can grow grapes. I think in Australia, probably areas like Tasmania are quite exciting. Um, but particularly from my point of view as a trying to keep an idea, idea of what's going on on the world stage, the Riesling's from Canada and, and really high in the, in the northern uh, aspects of the United States are really exciting. What are, what are the ideal growing conditions for Riesling? Riesling's a bit of a fickle variety. Um, obviously, to get it right, you need exactly the right climate, which is why there's a lot of try and fail with new Riesling plantings. Uh, the traditional sort of approach is what the what the old school viticulture is called long and low. So you want quite a long growing season for flavour development, but with quite cool temperatures or at least very cool nighttime temperatures. Uh, and that really allows reason to shine. Yeah, that's really interesting because what, what are the uh, typical attributes of a Riesling? So Riesling varies dramatically depending on where it's grown and how it's made. Riesling grapes are renowned for being very thin-skinned. They're very delicate grapes in themselves, quite physiologically, uh, and they tend to produce flavours and aromas across a huge spectrum. So when the grapes are quite uh, green or it, it slightly more unripe, they'll have quite sort of lean citrusy notes varying on, it's almost vying into the herbaceous spectrum, and as they become riper and riper, they develop more stone fruit and tropical, a lot of apricot. Uh, so it's it's really a, a variety with a huge amount of versatility just off the level of ripeness. Because people uh, often associate Riesling um, as a sweet wine, which, as you've said, is completely wrong, uh, when it comes to buying a Riesling, how do we know whether we're getting a dry or a sweet varietal? Like any hacks on trying to find the right one that suits our palate? Absolutely. Well, in Australia, we're actually very lucky that most of, well, if you like a dry Riesling, most of the Rieslings we make for our own market these days are very dry. It seems to be the preferred, uh, preferred style. 
But on a lot of reasons, and including, including the back of all the Riesling Freak wines, you'll see on the back label, there's what we call the International Riesling Federation Dryness Scale. And it's a little scale on the bottom of the back label. A lot of wineries use this now, which basically has a little indicator saying how dry or sweet the wine is. So the, the scale goes from dry to medium, dry to medium, sweet to sweet. And there'll be a little mark on the top of the scale indicating exactly how sweet that wine is. And how about overseas? Overseas, well, this is a completely different ballgame. Although they, a lot of wineries do still use this uh, international dryness scale, uh, particularly from Germany, they have completely different classifications for wines depending on their sweetness levels. Uh, so if you see a Riesling uh, from Germany that's labelled as Trocken, Trocken means dry. Uh, if you find one that's named uh, Spatlays or Auslays, they're sort of medium sweet. And then you've got beer and Auslays and Trocken beer and Auslays, which is very sweet. <laughs> We actually uh, are doing the WSET at the moment, uh, which is a bit of fun. And we did a whole module on Riesling last week and they were talking through all the labels and the classification system. And it is quite a handful, you know? It is. It is an absolute minefield. But the good thing these days is there's so many uh, apps and, and, and sort of accessible sites online that you can Google a wine and find out exactly whether it's even not in English. Uh, and you can pretty, you pretty confidently work out before you buy a wine how sweet it is and whether or not you're likely to like it. <laughs> and we'd always like it, right? Of course. There's nothing not to like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk about winemaking techniques. Now, what sort of uh, stylistic changes have you noticed over the years of working uh, with, with Riesling Freak? So Riesling in general is one of those wines, what I love about Riesling and what is, makes Riesling such an incredible challenge as a winemaker is that it really does show everything you do to the wine, every step you take, every addition you make shows up in the finished wine. There's no hiding in Riesling. Uh, so you really, every, every decision you make has to be about preserving the character of the wine and really maximising those aromatics. So with Riesling particularly, white wines in general to a point and Riesling in particular, uh, I can say that over the last, well, a few decades really, there's been a slow progression uh, to basically things like preventing oxidation of the fruit, the juice and the wine. Um, so lots of uh, use of uh, inert gases to prevent oxidation uh, and also keeping the fruit cooler prior to processing and a lot more gentle handling. So basically the less you do to the wine, the better. You want it to be as natural as possible and as clean as possible at the end of the day. And on winemaking techniques, why is it that Riesling is rarely oaked uh, compared to other varietals? I think this harks back to the fact that the natural aromatics and flavours in Riesling are so delicate and so pure that you put them in contact with oak and they can be swallowed up a little bit. So they're really nice just in their absolute pristine purity. You can make oaked Riesling. They do exist and they are out there. We make one ourselves. Um, But it is a rarity because you really have to have fruit with incredible flavour intensity to start with to stand up to that oak. And it's just very hard to find fruit of that level of uh, intensity in the Australia, in Australia anyway. It's more common in places like Alsace, but it's very, very rare in Australia. And unlike many whites that are often consumed young, Rieslings can age exceptionally well. Why is that and what tasting notes do they develop as they age? Aging Riesling is a, is a really actually a bit of an exciting adventure. Um, when the wines are young, they are incredibly crisp and bright and perfumed. Uh, but what makes Riesling so special from an ageability point of view is that natural acidity that the grapes do carry all the way through their ripening period. 
So as young wines, they can be quite crisp, verging on almost tart or, or austerely acidic. Uh, but that acid actually helps the wines to, to age really beautifully. Uh, it, it almost acts like a preservative and helps the wines to age very gracefully. So the flavours will move from very bright perfume characters of citrus and floral and will tend to become more honeyed and toasty and buttery as the wine ages. Um, but it's a really it, taking your favourite Riesling and watching it age over years or even decades is, is an incredibly exciting journey. Uh, and every wine ages differently. Uh, and that's what I absolutely love about Riesling. What's the oldest Riesling you've ever tried? Uh, the oldest Riesling I've ever tried personally was from 1972. So it was 10 years older <laughs> than I was. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a pretty good day. Um, <laughs> they are obviously much older Rieslings out there, but um, I felt really privileged drinking that one, I'll be honest. Uh, and it is really interesting to watch, particularly a lot of those older Rieslings tend to be under cork. It's always a little bit of a, a lottery as to whether you're going to get a wine in good condition once they've been sitting under cork for 40 years yeah. or longer. Um, but, yeah, it's a, I don't, when you get one that's actually aged the way it should, it is just an absolutely out-of-body experience. It's absolutely ethereal. Because <laughs> I've often, you often hear people refer to uh, Rieslings at age as having sort of a petrol, petroleum type, you know, characteristic. Yeah. What, I mean, that just sounds bloody awful. <laughs> it does. And it's funny, some people absolutely love it. A lot of people don't. Um, but I have had people actually ask, you know, what reason should I buy if I want it to look like you know kerosene in a few years time it's like i don't know why you want to drink that but um a lot of people do it, it's all horses for courses you just got to know what you like but um i think the tea the, the character the kerosene or petroleum like character that you see in in rieslings as they age and a lot of wines but predominantly in riesling is actually a compound called tdn um i'm not going to bore you with the whole chemical name of it but um basically it's related to sun exposure on the grapes so particularly when we were growing Riesling back in the 70s, 80s and 90s in Australia, when we were growing them under a lot of sunshine that they don't get in their, in their sort of native environments in, in Germany. Uh, and we weren't really uh, understanding why this character was happening. Um, and we were putting a lot of sunshine, a lot of water into the grapes to make, you know, big healthy crops. We didn't realise we were also encouraging this TDN character to develop in our wines as they age. Uh, wines that we're making these days, there's a lot of different technology going into trying to avoid this kerosene character. So we, at Riesling Freak, we, we uh, have adopted a lot of different uh, vineyard strategies, so creating denser canopies, more leaf coverage so that the grapes don't see as much sunshine, and also even applying uh, a very natural clay-based sunscreen to the grapes, which stops the what? UV rays actually getting onto the grapes. What? <laughs> sunscreen? <laughs> slip, slop, slap in the grapes. It is completely <laughs> slip, slop, slap for the grapes. It's great. <laughs> So okay, I want to ask with the with the uh, with that with that flavor profile, what does it um, taste and smell like? Does it actually smell like being at a petrol pump? Um, I've had wines. I've had one wine in particular which I think scarred me for life, which I tasted at a technical seminar, which tasted which smelled so much like kerosene. I actually couldn't put it in my mouth. Oh, it was wow. everything in my body was saying, do not drink this. It is poison. <laughs> I knew it was a wonderful glass of very aged Riesling, but it was that strong. It was like putting your nose into a bottle of kerosene. Um, 
So, look, and obviously that is an extremely extreme example. Uh, that's the only one I've ever seen go that far. But normally it is like it's a bit of a waft of something like standing at a petrol pump or having a bottle of Kero open. And it, it, it does sit, tend to integrate with all the honey and toast and the lovely other aromas, but it's just something there that you're looking at it going... Not quite sure if that belongs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, childhood memories of mum filling up the car down at the lake. <laughs> uh, it's a bit like <laughs> So um, my next question is I want to chat about Riesling and Botrytis. Now, we're going to get into uh, styles shortly, but can you tell us a little bit about what Botrytis is and why it's so commonly associated with Riesling? Absolutely. So Botrytis is actually, well, basically, it's a type of fungus. Um, it's a fungus called Botrytis cinerea, um, or more commonly known as noble rot. So noble rot is a particular type of fungus which infects the grapes quite late in their ripening period. And basically it causes uh, the grapes to concentrate and you end up with both the concentration of the sugars, which imparts sweetness in the resulting wine, and also adds a lot of flavour and complexity, which is directly related to this particular fungus. Um, it's most commonly associated with Riesling because Riesling is incredibly susceptible to this particular type of fungus. Um, so particularly in places like Germany where you've got that cool, damp environment late in season, uh, this particular uh, noble rot is endemic to a lot of the vineyards and it does sort of come with the, if you leave the grapes out there long enough, it kind of comes with the territory. And a lot of winemakers realised many hundreds of years ago that this could actually make a really exciting and interesting wine. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing, a bit like blue mould in cheese, uh, noble rot in grapes can make something really interesting. That is actually quite interesting. Uh, I, 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 uh, we touched on it again in the course this week and I just thought it was fascinating because obviously there's a crossroads where it can be unfavourable. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, but so, it, so it's a bit of a balancing act, right? It is, and I think because there's also a lot of confusion, even now, where that not all botrytis is good botrytis. There's a lot of other variations of the fungus out there, particularly in areas that don't have this endemic Botrytis cinerea, and that actually causes the grapes to rot. It's a very, it's a bad rot, <laughs> uh, and it, it does, it does, you know, basically write off your crop. So, but to have the right conditions for the good fungus, you're also going to have the right conditions for the bad fungus. So, it's a little bit of a lottery as to whether you're going to end up with a really um, amazing, exciting botrytis wine, or whether you're going to end up with a complete write-off. Can you introduce botrytis, or is it always naturally occurring? It is usually naturally occurring in the more traditional uh, botrytis regions, but it is something that can be applied with a with a fungus, fungus spray, basically. So rather than applying a fungicide to prevent fungus, you apply the fungus spores in a spray. Uh, that's generally associated with, in inverted commas, poorer quality uh, uh, botrytis wines, but it can also be a way to bolster a, na a native population of botrytis that may be struggling due to either environmental factors or any other number of reasons if you're trying to encourage that level of fungus that you don't really have naturally. And, Belle, another winemaking technique that I want to talk about is ice wine. And it, it, it's actually made with frozen grapes. Can we talk a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. Um, something we will never have the uh, climate to make <laughs> here in the Barossa. But ice wine is a really unusual and exciting approach to Riesling making, uh, predominantly only really seen in Germany and certainly now in areas of Canada and in the northern United States where it does get cold enough at the end of the season to actually freeze the grapes on the vine. Uh, to achieve a true ice wine, the wine, the grapes do need to be clean, so no fungus or, or botrytis whatsoever, and the grapes actually freeze completely solid on the vine. You have to pick those grapes while they're still frozen, so usually oh. pre-dawn with a hell of a lot of pickers. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful getting up at that time of the morning, oh. so cold, picking frozen grapes. Oh. I think that's why not many people make it because, you know, no one wants to do that. But basically the idea is that you pick <laughs> these frozen grapes, you put them into a press, and as the, the grapes very gently start to thaw, you extract very concentrated, very highly sugared juice, and you ferment that into the ice wine, which, of course, because of the fact that it's very sweet and very thick and very syrupy, will not ferment all the way, and you end up producing this beautiful, intense, sticky-style dessert wine. It does sound rather scrumptious, I have to say. Oh, it is. I've got to say. <laughs> I wish I had that <laughs> oh, with a with a lovely like chocolate dessert, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> um, so the next, uh, oh god, I'm going through my notes thinking, what's the next question? I'm now thinking about sweet. <laughs> um, now, obviously, as we know, reasons can vary from very dry to extra sweet, as we've just discussed. But I want to talk through three distinct styles, uh, referencing. Three of your lovely wines are in front of me. Uh, we've got a sparkling, we've got a dry style Riesling, and we've got a dessert style Riesling. So let's start with sparkling. Can you talk to me first yeah. around how sparkling is made or how your sparkling is made with Riesling grapes? So our Riesling Freak number nine, which is our sparkling or sect style Riesling, sect is the Germanic term for sparkling. Um, so this is made very much uh, as a really beautiful harmony between the purity of Riesling and that incredible fruit drive that it does have and the classic complexity that you get from traditional French champagne method sparkling. So we actually make our sparkling as a method champenoise, which basically just means in the traditional French method. Um, so we make the base wine, we pick the fruit. It all comes from our Claire vineyard, uh, which is our family vineyard up at White Hut. We pick this fruit about 10 days before we pick the rest of the vineyard for our dry style Rieslings. So this is really aiming to get fruit with an incredibly good natural acid drive uh, and with really light and delicate citrus characters. Uh, we ferment the wine to dryness as you would for any normal uh, Riesling wine. And then we re-ferment it with a little bit of added sugar in the, spa, in the bottle. So in the actual bottle that you buy from the shop, that is the bottle where we do our secondary fermentation. And we do that under a crown seal uh, with yeast to basically produce the bubbles. Gosh, uh, and so we leave that wine in that bottle for three years with the yeast in there. And as the yeast start to break down, they release a lot of really scrummy characters that uh, evoke a lot of honey and toast and brioche, those lovely sort of classic French champagne characteristics. Uh, and then we remove the yeast through a, uh, a lovely little process called disgorgement and put the crap back on and put it out on the market for you guys to enjoy. And what food would a dry sparkling like this pair well with? I, I think this is just a classic aperitif. 
Um, I'd have this with almost any, you think of almost any hors d'oeuvre you can imagine it's going to go well with. Uh, obviously, the classic combination for most Riesling lovers is oysters or oh, any kind of shellfish. Yum. Um, but anything, even because of that lovely driving acidity, anything like a creamy volivant or, um, oh, God, I'm making my mouth water. <laughs> <laughs> any, I think it's just a, it's a great wine to just enjoy with some nibbles and some friends. It goes with cheese. It goes with sweet. It will go with almost anything that you want to put up, ne- up against it. But it's just a lovely little tipple, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm enjoying uh, it a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm not that far behind you. Um, how, how should it be served? Really cold? Um, with this, I would suggest fridge cold, so not ice cold. Um, but, you know, anything sort of, you know, between at about four degrees would be ideal. But in your standard domestic fridge, uh, would be perfect. This is a wine that uh, you can probably stand to serve a little colder than most of your standard still white wines um, because it does pre- it does preserve the bead and the bubble that little bit more. Um, but it will also open, if you hold it in the glass, it will start to open up with a little bit of uh, increase in temperature as well. And how about ageing a sparkling Riesling? What are we talking? Well, like, like all sparkling wines, honestly, most of the aging is done for you. So the age, the aging of a sparkling wine is predominantly done while the wine is still on lee. So while it still has the yeast in the bottle, and once that yeast comes out, there's very little benefit to aging it any further. You can. There's nothing saying you can't. Uh, but as the wines age, they, they they do tend to lose a little bit of their vibrancy, and they are really best to be drunk within a, within a year of release. Now, next, we have got a dry style riesling. Uh, yes. How is this particular wine made? So this is our number three. This is our clear. This is of the same vineyard as the sparkling. Uh, this is our family vineyard at White Hut again. So Claire Riesling is really renowned for, even though it's got your typical elegance and drive of a, of a classic Australian Riesling, and it is dry, uh, it does have a little bit more fruit generosity than some other regions. So this wine is made in a very traditional Australian Riesling manner. So we pick the fruit uh, usually between 10 and 11 by May. So when it's developed enough sugar and uh, and flavour to be really sort of pretty and citrusy but not end up with high alcohol at the end. Uh, and we basically preserve all that character in the fruit as much as we can, low temperatures, lots of uh, ox- protection from oxidation and ferment it out until it's dry. So we convert all the sugar in the grapes all the way through to alcohol. We don't keep any uh, as residual sugar in the wine. So this wine will have that lovely, bright, natural, crisp acidity. It's got incredibly good length of flavour, and it tends to be a little bit more peachy and stone fruity on the palate, lots of rich uh, citrus character, lots of lemon and orange, uh, and really aromatic. So this really bounces out the glass at you. Um, and this wine is just a fabulous uh, pairing for so many different foods. It's really versatile because of that combination of bright acidity and rich fruit flavour. Yeah, so with a drier style Riesling, what would we be pairing with it at home? Again, uh, the, 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 the classic kind of mentality is to pair Riesling with seafood, and it's very hard to say that's a bad idea because it's not. It's a very good <laughs> idea. Um, <laughs> it's always a good idea. But, um, look, I think... Uh, a lot of people tend to overlook the fact that the acidity in Riesling really uh, sets it up to pair very well with any type of food that has a high fat content 
or oil content. So anything, any of your creamy sort of French provincial dishes, uh, anything like your Asian stir fries, pork belly, anything that's got that lovely unctuousness and that rich kind of creamy or, or fatty kind of texture pairs really well with Riesling. Uh, and I think that's probably a side of cuisine that's not really explored as much by a lot of people, and it really should be. So the acidity helps cut through um, the richness of those foods you just mentioned. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It really cleanses the palate. And how about ageing when it comes to a dry-style Riesling from this region? From this region from Clare, honestly, sky's the limit. Um, so we would happily recommend to age this for 20 years or more. It really depends oh, on how much wow. patience we have. <laughs> <laughs> But at Riesling Freak, um, John and my philosophy has always been the wine should be approachable and really enjoyable to drink as a young wine. So it's got to be something you could crack open tonight, but it has to have the right acidity and balance to ensure that this will age gracefully for many, many years. With with a sweet style Riesling, generally speaking, how are they made compared to the dry style we referenced before and the sparkling? So the main difference is that basically whether the wine is made in, in the style of our number eight or whether it's made in a sticky dessert style, it's all about incomplete fermentation. So you basically want to only ferment out as much of the sugar as you need to create the style that you want. So you stop the yeast from fermenting at whatever point you think the wine looks right. So it's not about adding sugar back. Um, that's actually illegal, so don't do that. Uh, it's more about just making sure that you only ferment out enough sugar until the wine is of the style that you want. So you, inevitably you'll end up, depending on when you pick the grapes, as something with lower alcohol than you would normally have but with higher sugar. And what would be a typical style characteristic of a dessert Riesling? So dessert Riesling, quite different to what we've got in the number eight, which is uh, this sort of cabinet style. A dessert Riesling I would associate more with like a sticky or a botrytis um, or even an ice wine. And those wines tend to be very syrupy, very unctuous, a lot of residual sugar, which adds to the texture. But they should also have, being Riesling, they will also have this lovely driving acidity, which adds a sort of tingling sherbet-like finish and adds a lovely crispness to the end. And what foods pair well with a dessert Riesling? Dessert, well, dessert Riesling, by the very name, would indicate that it goes very well with dessert. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was like pointing out the obvious, but you know, like, give me some examples but, so we can fantasize about what we're eating. Uh, but again, sweet Rieslings, uh, because there is such a huge variety of styles of sweet Riesling, they go with an incredibly uh, vast array of different cuisines. Our number eight, for example, being the Cabernet style, uh, we love to serve with roast pork. As I said before, high acid wine tends to complement a rich meat like pork very well. Then again, it also goes very well with, you think, like a hard uh, very well well aged cheese, or I've even known people to have things like uh, ice wine and botrytis wines over ice cream. Uh, there's a variety of different ways you can enjoy riesling, and really the sky's the limit. Yeah, right. Okay, so this so the sweeter varietals will obviously pair well with all of those really. But but is a really sweet dessert wine okay with a really sweet dessert? They can pair remarkably well, actually. But again. Uh, I think it depends a little bit on the style of wine that you're enjoying. But most of most dessert-style uh, Rieslings, again, I would probably personally to my palate prefer to have them with cheese. But having them with a very creamy dessert, if they've got high acidity, uh, can be a very good pairing. And likewise, any sort of your more crisp sort of sorbet-like desserts are also a very good match. And how about ageing of dessert wines in general? 
are very good candidates for ageing. Again, because sweeter styles of Riesling, regardless of style, do tend to have very high acidity and that is the real backbone for very good ageability. Yeah, fabulous. Now, if we were to do a bit of a Riesling tasting at home, how would we go about that? Oh, there are really, again, this is all, this is really only only sort of limited by your imagination. There are so many diff- very different and very exciting styles of Riesling on the market uh, that you can pretty much put together a tasting of that is only limited by, by your want and whim. Uh, so you can start with a sparkling Riesling if you do find one, like our number nine, or there are a few others out there. That's always a good way to start a meal. Find anyone that says, I don't want to start with a sparkling, I'll find you a liar. <laughs> and, uh, and then you can basically, from there, the world is your oyster. You can start with your very, typically you would start with your very dry styles, work through off dry to sweet and perhaps finish with a dessert wine. Um, but also, there's no reason to say you couldn't look at different producers throughout uh, within a, a singular region. You'll find a lot of different styles, even if they're all dry, uh, you'll have ones that have a, a lot more richness, a lot more texture, ones that are a lot more, more delicate and refined. Or you could look at wines of different age. Typically, you start with the younger wines and move through to the older. But again, uh, there's no rule book here. There's pretty much you can do whatever <laughs> you like and you'll inevitably find a cuisine to suit every single wine on your table. This, we've done many, many dinners, John and I, where all we've served is Riesling, you know, 10-course degustation with a Riesling with every course. Wow. Just shows the versatility of the variety. <laughs> There's really nothing you can't do. I love the idea of that, actually. I, uh, oh, it, good it, fun, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> you sound like good fun, pal, all right? So <laughs> I'm looking forward to a day when we have a degustation together drinking all Riesling. Sure. I'll, I'll put an invite in the post. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, Ed, where are you enjoying where are you enjoying Rieslings from at the moment? Um, I have a little bit of a well, I mean, I must admit, I have an incredibly soft spot in my heart for Eden Valley Riesling. I um obviously being in the Barossa, there's a lot of it around, so it's easy access, which is nice too. But um there's something about the incredible, particularly out of the 21 vintage, the incredible florals and that mineral drive through the palate that you get from these incredible soils in Eden Valley that I do find them incredibly seductive. Um, I find it very hard to go past Meaden Riesling. But, look, I mean, I've had a, lo- a couple of lovely wines from Austria recently as well, um, nothing like broadening the palate. But, yeah, I look, <laughs> I'd be hard, hard-pressed to find a reason I didn't like, really. <laughs> um, Belinda, thank you so much for today. It's been so much oh, fun. And it's been a pleasure. I've, and I've been loving sitting here drinking on drinking Riesling or Lavo. It's just divine. Pleasure. And uh, lastly, before we uh, wrap up today's show, just a reminder that the 12th of August is fast approaching and that is the 2022 Halliday Wine Companion Awards. Now, if you'd like to subscribe to our online broadcast, I will put the link in the show notes for today's show. Uh, Thank you again for joining us today on By the Glass and uh, we look forward to speaking to you all again next week and have a glass for us and enjoy your weekend. Bye now.